This is Margaret uh, for the with a 4B show with Margaret. Um, it sounds like Jim is driving. Hello, Jim. Hello, Risa. Hello, Adrian. Hello. Hi. Hi. So we have a weekly show, uh, which was uh, on a quick hiatus, but we're back, uh, roaring back. And um, today's topic is going to be a good one. It is uh, for all those builders who are working at companies that are building something that could have regulatory questions or regulatory hair or just you know new categories where there's no regulatory framework. Um, think um, Lyft, Airbnb, Uber in one bucket or crypto in another. They're, they're just a gazillion. So um, this show is for you, and I have three um, fabulous guests um, with me. Before I introduce uh, the guests, I just want to make sure that um, I let you know that we are recording these shows um, so that, uh, hold on, let me invite Das to speak, so that we can run them as a podcast on our A16 Live channel. So if you are asking a question, then you agree that you give us permission to ask to run your question on the air in the in the channel. So with that, um, uh, office stuff out of the way. Let me introduce um, Adrian Durbin. Adrian Durbin, uh, these are all off the charts experts people. He's at Greenbrier today, and he was um, formerly the director of policy comms at Lyft, a company near and dear to my heart. Then we have Risa Heller, who has three young children but is also the CEO of Risa Heller Communications and the former director of comms for Senator Charles Schumer. And then uh, last but definitely not least, we have Jim Messina, who is the CEO of the Messina Group. He was Obama's chief um, deputy chief of staff. He was known as the fixer. I think that's a word that people in our profession have mixed feelings about, but we can discuss. Uh, so these are my free, three fabulous experts. Welcome all. And I'm just going to dive right in. Um, Risa, let's start with definitions. If I'm, you know, this is a, a big tech audience. If I'm a builder, if I'm a founder of some tech company, how do I think, what is policy communications and why should I care? Yeah, I mean, I think what I would say just like very, very broadly is like, everyone should always think about like how their, how their company will intersect with the government in what way and how. Um, sometimes it's hard to see around those corners and you need experts to help you do that. Um, but broadly you want to think about like, you know, are we going to be regulated? Are policymakers going to care about us in any way? And like, you know, we see at my firm, we see a lot of different kinds of companies and a lot of different kinds of founders. Um, some of whom start their companies, have these fabulous, super wonderful creative ideas and think like the government doesn't care about this. They're not, you know, they're not interested in X, Y, or Z. And what you find is nearly everything intersects with the government in some way. And so it is smart to try to figure out how to manage, how to manage that intersection um, and be, and manage it before it becomes a problem. And like, there are many, 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 many um, practical and smart ways to work with the government on these things. But, but that is what we are, how we urge people to think about this, which is like, how, what is going to happen? Is this going to intersect with the government and how, and how can I manage it smartly? That makes sense. But um, Jim, why don't you take this one? So I, I'm here I am. I've raised my $20 million, which is not that much money. I'm trying to figure out if my carbon dingular there will even ever work. That's a made up name, obviously. So shouldn't I try to build it and then ask for forgiveness versus like if I ask for permission, then I might not even get into the starting block and the world will be deprived of my fabulous invention. Well, look, I, let me just add to one thing Risa was saying, because I, I totally agree. You know, if your company has proprietary information on people, either health or privacy data, the government's eventually going to wind up in your bucket. If you have taxes, if you have crypto, if you have, if you do wire transfers, you do all of these things. If you trade over uh, national lines, eventually government is going to end up being a piece of what you have to do. And you know, I think Margaret's question to me is the right one. Yes, you should lower your head and go build your amazing thing and then go to A16 and get your money. But it's not like the old days. When, when I first moved from Washington to San Francisco, there was this annoying thing where people said to me, oh, we don't care about government. Government doesn't affect us. We're post-partisan. And then, you know, as Margaret said, then they started realizing that every single thing that they want to do started 
to have local local issues or international issues or state issues. And there's just layer after layer of government. And so you just got to kind of start to think through these layers with the people on your board, with your investors, with other folks to just get ready for the time when this is going to intersect. Because, you know, our one message to you in this entire podcast is gone are the days when you can't worry about this. It's going to eventually drive you fucking nuts. And, you know, people around you who can help you figure out some of this shit so you guys can focus on building uh, the amazing, whatever Margaret said, uh, festival or whatever the hell you're building. It's a carbon dingulator. And I, I'm, I'm very excited. I, my day's made because I did not drop the first F-bomb. So thank you, Jen, for that. But so then, Adrian, and please all feel free to chime in here. Like, so I got my $20 million. Like, how much of that do I have to now spend on lobbying? Like, how, how does this work? It's like, oh, you think through this and it could be health data, this, that, and the other. But like, I, you know, I need to hire engineers. I Like, I have frankly different priorities. And like, do I really need to pay someone to go lobby some staff member for some member of Congress? Like, how does it work? Well, I mean, I, I don't think you need to spend a lot of money right up front on lobbying. But the good news is that you can interact with policymakers without spending a lot of money on fancy lobbyists. You can do it yourself. And I, I think I think one point is another point to make is that you know, even if you think your product isn't going to be regulated and maybe won't be regulated at all for a long period of time, there's still no downside in engaging with policymakers to let them know who you are. Every policymaker loves a, a company, especially if it's located in their, in their district or it's a new hot thing, the Garmin Zingulator or whatever it's called, is going to you know sweep the world and they want to know about it and they want to know early. So you know, getting in, to, in front of them and telling them your story uh, will pay dividends down the road when inevitably the government is getting into their business. Okay, devil's yeah. advocate, oh. but I'm scarred by sort of the last few years of tech. Like if I tell regulators about it, am I just going to be the next target, Risa? No, 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 no. It's not necessarily about that. It's more like when I started my business, I remember someone said to me like, meet, meet your banker. Like go in and meet your banker and have a relationship with your bank. And I was like, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. But I eventually did and it was smart. The point that Adrian is making, which I think is really smart, is like meet your local electives. Like if you're going to put your, you know, whatever, if you're going to headquarter your company in Austin, New York City, wherever, like meet your local electives. Tell them what you're doing, not to get regulated, to like a lot of what a lot of these companies end up suffering from, like way down the path is like this notion, like like the any mystery that shrouds them. And so you can do a pretty good job with these guys by taking like by taking some of like the mystery out of it in terms of you know going to meet your local electeds going to meet the local mayor making sure they sort of understand what you're up to not so that you can get regulated it's not about that's not necessarily about regulation it's getting it's gaining some credibility um and figuring out where to take that credibility um and i think that's a very very important thing especially now when everyone is so so skeptical of like quote unquote big tech yeah, well, let me just add here. Uh, I don't want to just think about this as defense either. Um, just getting, you know, first of all, you should not pay a lobbyist any money. This is why when you're interviewing board members, when you're looking at who's going to invest in your round, you want people to have relationships that can help you build. Second, go to your local members, figure out how to help this. But third, think about, you know, using government and these regulatory bodies as two things. One, they can be a potential customer. Two, they can help you build a moat. Think about it this way. You know, Airbnb, my first client was Uber, my second was Airbnb. Two companies who vastly handled their government relations incredibly differently. But use Airbnb as an example. They ended up going to one city where they had a great relationship and getting them to pass a bill they liked that really made sense to them. And then they had hundreds of other cities adopted. You know, we talk to our small companies all the time about going and finding local mayors or local governors who, to, to both Risa and, and uh, Adrian's point, want to adopt them, want to help them, want to give them money, want to give them tax breaks, want to, you know, do a whole bunch of things to actually help them just because they think they're cool and they want to have cool companies in their, in their city or state. So don't just think about defense, think about offense too. I think Jim, that so Lyft, Airbnb, those are a great example. But they have they had they have a great 
thing that made them very attractive investments, they have sort of city-by-city city arbitrage. What if you are regulated by one of those three-letter agencies that, like, if they take a dislike, you're done because you can't go to the next city or the next municipality and, like, try again there? I guess what I would, well, go, what I would say is they're not going to dislike you because you got in front of them to tell them about your product and what you're doing. If they're going to dislike you, they're going to dislike you. But I still don't see any reason not to engage with them, because uh, I, I think you're much more likely that they aren't going to try to regulate you out of existence. I mean, there's the, the the cliche is, you know, if you don't have a seat at the table, you'll be on the menu, which is overused, but it, I, I think it still holds true. Well, I mean, yeah, and to one... add to that, sorry, to, ahead, just no, to add ahead. to that, like, I would just say, like, better to know that you have a problem with one of those three-letter agencies early on than when it's too late and you've spent, you know, a shit ton of money and, like, kind of can't look back. And, like, you know, there's a way to work with those guys to get to a better place, and that's that's worth doing. Okay, so listen, basically, I sort of agree with you, but I'm going to play devil's advocate one more time because... If you look at the big tech companies who have plenty of engagement with government regulators, I would, I would let's just stipulate they do. They have offices there and whatnot. It's not working out so well. So I, I hear you, but the playbook sounds a little bit pre, you know, every, the only thing that Democrats and Republicans agreed on is that they all hate tech. Anyone? Well, look, I think some of that's real. I mean, we used to brag in the Obama White House that, you know, we had Eric Schmidt there every day and how close we were to tech and tech, tech, tech. And now you, know, you have Ted fucking Cruz retweeting Elizabeth Warren's attacks on Facebook. So uh, I think, you know, Margaret's point is that there is kind of more scrutiny on the big guys. But I think that, you know, below those people, you just have government agencies whose job it is to, to regulate and to figure out how to be helpful with some of these companies. And, you know, going back to Reese's point, if you're in healthcare, if you're in energy, you know, you're going to end up having real issues and real advantages if you can get to government early, get them to approve your products, get them to do things that can significantly increase your value. I mean, SpaceX was a wonderful company with not a lot of revenue until Elon got the federal government to be his, a customer, and now it's exploded. There's a whole bunch of stories like that. You know, look at all these baby companies that are now going SPAC that are some medical device company with something to do with COVID that are now exploding because they got emergency use authorizations by the federal government, and now every city, state, and local municipality is raining money on top of them. So again, I just want to challenge us not to just be defensive. Okay, so if we can just schedule the pandemic at the right time, we're good. Um, kidding. So let me just, all right, I'll, I'll acquiesce. You've beat me into the ground, and I'm going to go like, all right, I'll do this. Like, what do I actually do? Can, can you just describe some examples of like, okay, so here's what one actually does, and here's where a CEO should spend time. Here's what team to hire or what outsiders, like you guys, like how? Adrian. Yeah, sure. Well, so, I mean, there's different ways to do it. I think a lot of it is literally just picking up the phone, introducing who you are, especially if it's a CEO calling the local. And I agree with Risa, starting at the local level makes sense so that, you know, city councilor level, um, state representative or assembly member, co local congressperson, and introducing who you are. Invite them to your head, into your office, show them around, tell them what you do, and introduce them to, to the team. It's literally, you know, there's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And that starts building the relationship. And then over time, you know, they get to know who you are, you, you grow and you can, you know, keep, keep the relationship warm. Um, and then when there's, you know, when you get to the point where you're, you're growing and you have, a, have enough issues to deal with, you could hire a government relations person whose job it is to maintain those relationships and make sure that the elected officials know, you know, what the issues are and what changes you'd like to see, uh, et cetera. The other piece we haven't talked about is, you know, using the media to, see the environment to make things better for your company. At Lyft, when I joined, there were only about half the states that had regulations for ride sharing. So we were, to Jim's point, we were proactively trying to get regulation passed. We wanted, we, it was much better for us to be at the table saying, here's what we 
think the rules should be around ride sharing rather than having them do it on their own. So, you know, Uber was also involved. We had lifted very different approach to to government relations than than Uber did, but we we have both wanted basically the same thing. Um, and we used the media also to talk about to extol all the virtues of ride sharing and the economic development that it brought about and the the jobs that it created and the the way that it made people's lives better for getting around cities. So you can use the media to help and then the politicians read that. And then they're even more receptive to meeting with you and potentially at least hearing out what your concerns are. I would add two things. I think Nadrin's exactly right, but I would add two things. One, I would look at joining a trade association or someone who could do a bunch of this for you for a very small amount of money. You don't need a lobbyist at the beginning. And second, and we tell this to our companies, um, I would put a board member on the board who understood this and said, your job is to help us figure this shit out because I can't deal with it. I'm building my my wingle, whatever it is, and I've got to do it, but I want one board member who thinks that they have to do this. And then you look at you know, crypto space is another great example to Adrian's example. You know, the crypto companies are all now going to the federal government, going to the EU and saying, hey, regulate us, give us regulation, um, because there's an advantage if we can help you guys write this, we'll get cheaper access to capital, we'll be safe from all these kind of shady, you know, stuff that other governments are going to. So in this case, those people aren't hiring lobbyists. They've formed a trade association and the CEOs are all going to meet with the SEC and with the FCA, FCA in the UK to say, hey, let's do this together. You guys get tax money out of it and we get some regulatory certainty. Yeah, I would yeah. say Coinbase and crypto is a good example there because the, the thing, if you do get in front of folks, you can dispel some myths, like one big myth in the crypto space is that people use it for money laundering. And that is exactly... This is the most absurd way to use crypto ever because it's all, at least pseudonymous. Right. You can tr you can trace it. So that that is very true. Risa, I would just say add. Oh, sorry. I was just going to add to the Jim's point about uh, the board member and the trade association. Like one of the things that we've seen over the years, especially with the smaller companies, is like a lot of these folks, understandably, like don't necessarily have they have don't have any experience with the government, right? Like they don't know how the government works. They don't know what happens if they go to their local mayor or local city councilman or the feds, like they, do, it's just not their world. And so to the, like having either someone on your board that can like really help you understand this and like help you see, or an outside person help you see like where this is going to either be beneficial to you or problematic for you and sort of how to solve for that. Um, or like generally like the Intel from, you know, a trade association that just like has their finger on the pulse of like the regulatory landscape and what that will mean. Um, can be incredibly helpful. Like some of it is just getting founders and CEOs like into a place where they're actually even thinking about it. Because for a lot of these folks, it's just not where they naturally are. Like it's where we naturally are because we came up through government, but it's just not the way that everyone thinks. Um, and it's it can be incredibly useful, like to to for those guys to have either you know a trade association or a board member or both or and. Yeah, that uh, that's a really compelling point. Um, I want to follow up on something Adrian said in terms of using the media. Do you think that playbook has changed in the last, say, five years? Like, would you be able the to play do the same playbook that you ran at Lyft here? Or <clears throat> anyone can answer. Risa, go ahead. Well, let me. I was going to say one thing, which is media has totally changed, right? Like, I joke that when I worked for Chuck Schumer, I mean, this is actually really embarrassing. We would blast facts out, like his media advisories, and then we would rely on you know, the, um, we would rely on the reporters to like, you know, to use what we were doing or not. We'd call around, you know, we'd pitch stories, but like, we had to rely on that. Like you don't need, first of all, obviously fact machines are dead and it makes me feel like I'm 125 years old. Um, but also, you I know, can relate, Risa, you're in safe Thank hands. you. Thank I'm you. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but also like, you know, he, he and every other elected official and every founder and everyone else is unbound by any of those things. You can communicate directly to your audiences, right? So the, all that stuff, I mean, that has even changed, I think, within the last five years a lot. It has changed much more in the last 10 years, but it has changed a lot in the last five years. So that's one thing. Second thing that I think is really important is like, there is not, I don't think, I don't look at these things like there's a playbook. Like, let me dust off the Airbnb playbook for 
DoorDash, for example. Like all of these different regulated spaces, like you need to have a fresh look and you ha- you know, you can learn things from different, you know, these different campaigns that we all work on, um, but they're not the same. The third thing I would say is like the media can be a very powerful tool, particularly I think when it comes to like at jobs and economic development are like things that play well for every kind of elected official. So like a local, a federal, it doesn't really matter. So like reminding folks about like the the jobs and the and the tax base that you're creating for them in their city or in their state is like a, is is a thing that can always be helpful and like you know you don't necessarily need to get in front of senator x councilman y mayor you know mayor z you can have a story in the local paper that everyone will read and so you know you have to be smart about it and you have to be targeted about it but like you know we see things um you know, regulatory fights in New York, regulatory fights in New York, regulatory fights in Washington, where, you know, you want to, maybe you don't have time to go sit in front of everyone. Maybe you don't have the money, you know, to hire an army of people to go sit in front of every elected official. So it's more, it's like, it's a pretty, like, if you can get your message out with some of that, it's a pretty cost effective way to do it. And it's very credible. That's also a big if. That's what I was, Adrian, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what I was going to say is it's also dependent on like who you, where you are in the state, in the life cycle of your company. I mean, it's sure it's great to, and I totally agree that every, that things have changed pretty dramatically in the last five years. But if you, if you're just starting out, you know, your owned channels, you know, your, your social media pages and whatnot aren't going to have a ton of reach. So you know, you can do those all you want and it's not going to really move the needle very much. So that's why I think if, you, if you're just starting out, you still need to have a strong media relations plan that will allow you to reach a lot more people than you otherwise would. And then, you know, it, build, it builds off of itself. And then you, then you can get to the point where you need to, re, you rely less on the press. But I still think it's got to be an important component of what you're doing uh, at, at the outset. If you had sort of... Um top three pieces of advice uh, to both audiences, like to um, to government officials and to um, the business community, what would they be? So for example, I always think back, I like history. Uh, it, history tends to be instructive, right? So if I were talking to regulators all the time, I would sort of bring up the car industry. Just like imagine today someone come along and say like, okay, we have the car, and we're going to run cars at, I don't know, 50, 75 miles an hour in opposing directions. And the way we're going to make that work is that we're just going to draw a white line. That means you shouldn't cross over there. And we'll just, that'll work. Like, I think I have a hard time imagining that would get regulatory approval today. And yet that has been working. And then we have yellow lines. That means you shouldn't cross over. I mean, it's just like, just picture that for a second. So is is there something instructive there for regulators in that? I know it's a leading question, but I'd love you to respond to it since you have been in those shoes and, and are, are in their heads more than I Yeah, look, I'll start. I think one of the things, you know, I worked in the House and Senate for 20 years. Reese and I were colleagues, and then I went to the White House. And one thing you, you figure out, sorry, my dog's losing her mind. Um, <laughs> Your dog has a strong opinion on this. Now, yes, what is it? Apparently. Um, and look, one of the things you realize is there's, only, there's a limit to what government can do. You cannot think you can prescribe winners and losers. Let me give you an example. You know, the government's passing the biggest bills of our lifetime for money, and the infrastructure bills are going to pass next. The one thing they shouldn't do is try to decide in climate change what are the technologies that should be winners and losers. They should pass tax incentives to do some of these things to help founders figure out how to grow these technologies, but they shouldn't pick winners and losers. And traditionally in Washington, they have been way too prescribing on what to do. And Which they did in the solar industry, right? If I remember correct. correctly. Exactly. Yes, it did not it go well. A, yeah, that was part of that. It was a fucking failure. Um, now they did, you know, they clearly picked a very good winner in Elon Musk for both Tesla and SpaceX, um, where they helped him out hugely in both. So that's a good example. There are a whole bunch of companies, Oscar just went public, that was one of the biggest winners out of Obamacare. 
you know, so there's good examples here. And again, I go back to my earlier point. I just want founders to not think about government and press as a defensive mechanism. I wanted to think about offense as well. Let me give you another real-time, real-world example. I was on the board of PillPack before we sold to Amazon for a billion dollars. PillPack was the first online pharmacy that kind of exploded. And all of the incumbents were absolutely insistent on trying to kill these guys. They did not want online competition. So they fought us at the state regulatory level. They fought our local permits in all 50 states. You know, we ended up, to Reese's earlier point, having great relations with our local members of Congress in, in New Hampshire, who literally introduced bills going after these big folks, threatened antitrust investigations, threatened these companies. We got big stories. A CEO was on national TV and radio saying, I'm the little guy trying to fight these guys and they're trying to screw us. And we ended up winning. We won everything and ended up building a huge company because we used the press, because we used members of Congress proactively and went after the incumbents and beat them. So we got advice to regulators from Jim. Anyone else? Yeah. I mean, my advice to companies would always be like, tell your story first. Like, don't be defined. Don't let anyone else to define you. So like, whether it's your opponents, whether it's other policymakers, like, and I mean that, like, I don't necessarily, I mean it, of course, in the media sense, because that's what we do. But I also mean it in the government relations sense, like be the person who's telling the government yourself what you are up to and like why your thingamajig, I can't remember what we called it, is so fabulous. Like, don't that thing let has someone, stuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not working, but whatever, you know, be like define it yourself before someone else before someone else puts you like my the whole way that I operate when I think about this stuff is like be on your front foot and if you're on your front foot you can be much more nimble than if you're on your back foot and so you know obviously we every you know all of these things are different but like generally be on your front foot and if you can be on your front foot you're in a much better position um with 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 government and regulators and the media and everyone else. Like you want to be defining yourself. You want to be defining your thingamajig. You want to be defining your value proposition. You want to define yourself. I would also add from the company perspective to know what resources are out there for you to understand the landscape, um, even though you might not. So Jim gave a couple of good examples of joining a trade association, putting somebody on your board. You know, there's also, there's also tools that allow you to understand uh, in real time, basically, the different pieces of legislation and regulation that are being brought up at literally like every level of government, not just the federal government, but state and local. Um, you know, products that for short money can give you in your inbox uh, on a daily basis will tell you any piece of legislation or regulation that might impact your business. Um, and, you know, knowing what's out there is obviously critical because if it, things will happen to you without you even knowing about it, and then you can be screwed. Excellent point. So I want to switch topics a little bit. We actually big in a big way. So we've talked a lot about policy and regulation. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about politics. It seems like there's been a radical shift in that um, corporations, people are describing the CEO as a new politician, corporations either, you know, it depends on who you ask, either feel forced to comment on uh, political issues or or want to um, for whatever reason. So take the Georgia voting laws or yesterday's Derek Chauvin decision. What advice do you give on to companies on speaking out? And if so, what are the guidelines, the upsides and the downsides? Well, maybe I'll start um, since I've, as we were talking, Margaret and I were talking about this before, I've spent the last three weeks of my life helping clients think through the Georgia situation. And I think you go back to first principles. What is it, and to the point Risa was just trying to make, what is your message? What is your company? What? It, who are your customers? And what do you think your brand is? If your brand is kind of engagement brand, you know, we have Patagonia as a client, they're going to wade into every fight. They're going to be part of that because that's who they are. For most companies, my advice is, why are you getting involved in this? 
you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a great evolution for the majority of companies to walk into these huge political fights. That said, every one of you have a workforce and have workforce in your workforce who care very deeply about these societal issues. And I think gone are the days where the CEO can just make decisions on what they, he or she are going to say. And you saw CEOs try that around Georgia and get their asses kicked. You have to have a discussion before you get there with your company, with your leadership team, with your employees about when you are going to engage and when you're not and what is the theory of the case. And my kind of first principle theory, this sounds weird from a guy from politics, is for companies, don't get involved in fucking politics unless it's on brand for you and you think you need to uh, for reasons of either brand or your employees. Yeah, I mean, I, I have strong opinions about this. I think, like, yeah, unless you're Ben and Jerry's or whatever, like, stay the fuck away out of it because there is, I, in my view, there is no upside. And th there are a bunch of reasons. One is you may alienate parts, uh, portions of your customer base or regulators or whoever. You, you, you alienate about half the people that you're talking about. I mean, there, there, there are issues that are universally approved of by just about everyone for sure. Um, but those are not the issues that you're forced to speak out about. And then if you mentioned the employee base, I just find this so weird because, like, you know, the, you're assuming that the employee base is completely homogenous and everybody has the same opinion. And I just don't think that's true. That's not even true for most Silicon Valley companies. And that's a fairly homogeneous environment. You see that play out at the big companies, right, with like, internal cultural issues precisely over political issues. Yet it seems like every CEO has decided that that's now part of the job. I know it's well, a really. Oh, go ahead, Jim. No, Risa, go. I, I oh, I was just going to say, <laughs> I was just going to say, it's a really, really tough needle to thread. Like my instinct is always like, if you're not like, listen, for these companies that are mission-driven companies, like this is what they're going to do, and they should be talking about this stuff because it's the stuff that they care about, and they're mission-driven and. Speaking of like the employees, like that's part of the reason that these guys all came to work for this, you know, for this mission company. So that's one thing. Um, but I think if but you're, did they? Did they? Come I think to I work? think some of it is appealing. Like for example, Patagonia. I don't work for them, right? But I I I think you go work at Patagonia probably either because like you really like fleece, or I, this is coming from someone who like lives in New York City and tries not to go outside other than like to work in the subway and whatever. But like, you know, you really like fleece, you really like the outdoors and you really care about the environment. Right. So like those guys, I'm not saying they should be commenting on everything, but like if they're, and they've made a, they're, 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 you know, they want to be activists and they are activists and they should be right. But not every company is like, and so I, so one, I think it's, it's a draw for employees. I think it's, in many cases, why people go work at these companies. It makes them feel good. They're excited about it. And so in that case, that that's sort of one use case for talking about that stuff. And then there are companies that are not mission-driven and are making the widget, the thingamajig. And, I you know, would, so, Risa, can I just push back on that? And we're going to open it up yeah. for questions since this, I think, has draws lots of opinions. But the um, I think just about every company has a mission. It just may not be a political mission. If you work at an insurance company, like the mission should be to insure as many people as possible. Agree totally. I mean like a societal mission, like we're environmental activists, we're trying to make the world a better place. We're uh, you know, whatever, whatever the missions are. No, I agree. Like my mission is to do the best public relations possible, but that's not a mission, right? I mean, that's not mission, what I would call with a big M. Another well, way look, you can I let me just one quick, yeah. sorry, Adrian. Sure, let sure, me, sure. since I started out agreeing with Margaret, now let me disagree with <laughs> us both. I don't think it's as easy as you say it is, because there are some issues that just come up where companies, against my advice, feel like they have to comment. Black Lives Matter is, in a, is a great testament. Even my lily white tech companies felt like that was the moment they had to say, we're all in this together. You know, immigration is another issue where some people just, even though they're not political companies, uh, they feel that's a moment they have to wade in because of who they are and what their workforce is. That I understand. Not... And like, I'm, I never said it's easy, but like, here's why I think it's not smart. 
it's like, okay, so you say like, okay, you, you end up making statements that are um, obvious, I, I should say, right? Of course, we all agree that say Black Lives Matter to take a spicy one, right? And then, okay, so you do the statement in case if you're a big company, people pay attention. And then the next thing is like, well, fuck you, what are you doing about it? And then, of course, you don't know exactly what to do about it because this is a big societal problem that, you know, I've been an immigrant in this country, happily so, since 1991. I haven't heard a solution that I go like, oh, let's all go do that. That'll solve the problem. So then what do you do? Then you feel pressure and someone will suggest, like, let's make a donation. And then the reaction is going to be, well, fuck you. It's not a charity case. I just think there's no winning in this. So that one statement that you made because you felt like you really had to is going to follow you around, not in a good way even though you had all the best intentions. In but this is where you get paid the big bucks to be a CEO, because I just don't think it's, again, that easy. You know, during, Right, but then they shouldn't run it like a popularity contest and say like, oh, so many people say like, I need to say something, therefore I'm going to say something. That's not what they pay you to do. No, but, but think about it this way. When, when let's say some percentage of your workforce um, is African-American and you don't say anything and you have massive unrest internally, including board members quitting because you're at this pivotal moment in time, you're not going to say anything. That's where the CEO makes the big bucks and has to say, hey, we're going to say something because this is a pivotal time. It just you can't it doesn't work both ways. And, and some of these people like, look, I've given exactly the advice Margaret has given people recently. Don't wade into this. And they've said to me, you don't understand who my workforce is. And if I don't, we, it'll be way worse than a bland statement about, about this. And it's just, that's what CEOs have to deal with. Yes. And the thing I would add is like the, you can see, like these statements are done are are the most well done when you can see a CEO actually really cares about it, right? Like when they're not just like coming up with some dumb pablomy things to say because they feel like they have to, but like the folks who are really good at it care about it deeply and like do a good job. But Margie, I, I generally agree with you. Like I don't think that CEOs, and I think there's, first of all, I don't think that CEOs need to be wading into this stuff all the time. The other thing that I would say is like, I think everyone should like make a distinction between like societal ills and politics because there are two different things. And so like, you know, endorsing a presidential candidate, you know, on a company Zoom or holding a fundraiser for a super, for a, you know, a super controversial elected official or whatever, like those are things that can get you in trouble. Like doing something that is generally considered to be good for society, you know, standing up for voting rights broadly, saying Black Lives Matter, like those things, you know, those, like there's a difference and people need to understand the difference to get it right. Yeah, and I will say, I sometimes feel for CEOs because they don't really get to have their own personal opinions anymore because everything they do, like fundraiser, this, that, or the other, is viewed as like speaking for the company. So in some ways, you have to sort of this funny dilemma where they pay you the big bucks, you're a big time CEO, but like you can't really, you know, it's it's harder for you to go to whatever protest or whatnot as uh, you know if it if it's if it's off some sort of mainstream, anyhow. Um, Jim, you want to say something, Adrian, but I'm going to open up to questions too. So, um, yeah, one more thing, up. which is to, to your point about owning all this, my advice to our clients is why do you have a pack? Get rid of your pack because every contribution you give, you're going to end up owning those people's politics and don't throw fundraisers for elected officials. Like just, you know, don't walk into these political things. They're just too hard. And it really goes back to first points of saying to your employees, this is when we're going to engage in these things. And every place else, we're not. And here's why we're not. So everyone understands. So if, you're, if your CEO or your company's not on some letter with 250 prominent companies saying, we want X and Y, you can say, we told you we weren't going to get on those kind of things because we only want to wade in when it's X. You just have to make those decisions before you're calling Risa at midnight saying, what the hell do I do? Right. Which is why we don't sign any letters. Anyhow, Anton, I hope I don't butcher your name. You've been waiting patiently for a long time. Please ask a question, though, so we can get to as many questions as we can. Go ahead. Thank you very much, Margaret. Um, I've got a question and also a quick comment, if I may, but I'll ask the question first and then leave it up to you guys to decide if I can make a comment. Um, my question is to do 
with that difference between political and partisan, because I believe that it's somehow okay if there's a reason behind it rather than fakery to, you know, have a political opinion as a CEO, um, as long as you don't get partisan. So how would one go about making sure that you don't fall into the uh, partisan hole? It's a good question. It's a tricky line. Who wants to take it? I think what I would say is like a lot of it, like what I, to Jim's point about PATH, like don't go out, like you as a CEO are not going to go out there, Anton, I don't know if you're a CEO, but whatever, you know, you're not going to go out there and like publicly, you know, campaign for candidates in your company. Um, That is not a good idea. What I would say is like, are there broad, like, are there broad societal issues that are hot button that you can be talking about that you care about that somehow mesh with what the company is trying to do, those things make sense. Otherwise, it probably doesn't make sense. And like, again, you know, so many founders are like these fabulously creative people who are like super honed in on like, I don't know, how to get a car to fly or how to make the thingamabob or whatever the thing is. And like, if that's the thing that you're solely focused on, like the thingamabob, like do the thingamabob. Like you don't need to come out and like figure out how to be a policy wonk or figure out how to be like a big brain on immigration reform. But for example, if you're a CEO who's an immigrant who cares a lot about immigration reform, that makes a lot more sense. So like, you know, the thing has to make sense and you have to actually care about it. I mean, most importantly, and I would say like, you know, don't don't jump into like partisan, like political fights for the sake of being in a partisan political fight, because those always have, you know, two like two vocal sides. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think <clears throat> the key is in how you frame what it is that you're saying. So you certainly don't want to frame it in a, through a partisan lens. Frame it through your your personal values or your comp- the, the values that your company stands for. And then, you know, the chips will fall where they may, but at least you're not aligning yourself on one side of the political aisle versus the other. That makes yeah, sense. I, I, I think we see this the most in immigration, especially with our Silicon Valley CEO clients, because a lot of them are immigrants themselves. And our advice is it is absolutely to Reese's point. You can tell your story. You can talk about why immigration is great and important. Here's the line. You don't endorse any proposals. You don't endorse any pieces of legislation or any members of Congress who are doing these things. So you, you want to advocate for immigration reform? Great. Tell your story. But the moment you start wading into the battle of which provision and which bill, you're going to get killed and, and you should stay out of it. That actually sounds like a presidential approach or like an ex-president approach. Let's move on and let's try to get like one answer per question. I want to get a couple more questions on. Um, Rachel, why don't you go next? Hi, all. Thanks for this really interesting conversation. Um, I wrote a bill in 2017 that's now been passed in a few states. And other than getting really great headlines for legislators and policymakers, what do you all think is the best way to really show appreciation for and continue to develop relationships with lawmakers? I think a good headline is a nice, like, it's a, it's a nice show of appreciation. I mean, don't politicians live for good headlines? I think they, that's sure a good yes, they sure do. Yes, they do. Rachel, good you did headlines, it. Good headlines and contributions. Yeah. Rachel, call oh, right. it a win. Move on to your next <laughs> bill. Yeah, exactly. I think she's trying to wipe out hunger. I saw in her bio. So she's got a big job ahead of her. Yes. Um, anyhow, Peter, why don't you go? Hi. Um, my question is in the vein of when should policies, or sorry, when should companies engage with policy uh, stakeholders? And the reason I ask that is because I feel like there's kind of this approach that it seems like like en- engaging with uh, politicians or you know policymakers is like eating your vegetables. Um, but you know, like I think we're in this new mode of capitalism, especially like stakeholder capitalism, where eventually the company is going to be held to account by a broad range of stakeholders. And it would probably do best by the company to address the problems earlier on and kind of build a community that actually um, helps them through um, the problems that they might face in the future. So like when should companies engage with policymakers? 
Yeah, look, I think it has two, there's two reasons. One, if you have something valuable to add uh, and help policymakers think through. And two, if there is a need, that, to your point, if you're eventually going to need their approval or their or their help or any interaction with them, I always think you're better off talking to folks when you don't have anything to ask for, when you're just telling them who you are and what you're doing and not having an ask. And so I do believe that going early is is almost always better uh, than going when you need something. Jim, that is excellent uh, life advice, I think, just in, just in terms of business relationships or otherwise, like just... Talk to people when you don't need them. So thank you. Ronald, you're next. Please ask your question. Hello, everyone, and thanks for the room. My name is Ronald. I am based in New York City, and I am the founder of a um, nonprofit in the professional development professional development space for the hospitality industry. I have done what some of you have suggested, which is reaching out to city council, local aldermen and congressmen, telling them who I am and doing introductions. Where I got roadblocked or stuck was that I did not know how to engage and build the relationship beyond that initial introduction. So what do I do after that? After I meet them, I get their staff to respond to my emails. We set up a Zoom meeting. What do I do next beyond keeping them informed through email? And then secondly, um, in regards to access to um, access to resources or information when you're engaging with the government how or government officials, how do you find out what programs or services are there? Because as I am a nonprofit and we're in the startup phase, we are capacity building, but we are very limited because of access to funding. And I thought that reaching out to our local officials would help us be able to create the network and access to resources. But I found that I met them. They said, oh my God, that's amazing what you're doing. We're going to do a job fair and we'll let you know. And now it's just stale. But I met like eight different government officials, but now the relationship seems to just be stagnant. Thanks for your question, Ronald. Who wants to take this one? Uh, I can start. I mean, I, th I think you have to be persistent and you have to spe be specifically asking for something. You know, I might be wrong, but it sounded like you met a lot of elected officials, told them about what you were doing, but weren't there wasn't an ask there. I think you should treat it like, um, you know, like a sales pitch and tell them exactly what it is that you need. It doesn't mean you're going to get that. But, you know, I used to be a legislative staffer. We would have people tell us all the time, this is what I need. This is what I need. Sometimes we were able to deliver, sometimes we weren't. But those who were more persistent were usually more successful. I'm laughing okay, because I... my instinct was the opposite, Adrian. <laughs> and also as someone who comes from the government, I'm thinking to myself, like, like, don't drive these guys crazy. Like, make a relationship with them. Like, you know, tell them what you're doing. And then, like, use, for example, city agencies, like small business services or, you know, or... Um, like in New York City, there are a bunch of like umbrella organizations over like social service agencies and nonprofits, like figure out how to help those guys leverage um, like funding or whatever else you can do. But like, so I'm, I'm sure both ways can work, but I'm laughing, Adrian, because I was like, oh, no, don't do that. Don't pepper them with a million. I'm not saying That's you have to have them with a million questions, but, but you can, you know, they can help, a legislative staffer can help direct you to a city agency that can then help you with what you're doing. Okay, guys, uh, we have time for two more questions, and we have Ian and Bo. So, Ian, you're next. Thank you. Hello, everyone. So, given he's not your average uh, technology startup leader, um, given some of your answers over the last hour or so, I'm curious, what did you all think about Jeff Bezos purchasing the Washington Post? I thought he was out of his fucking mind. Uh, I, I, I didn't understand that. And I thought exactly what happened was going to happen, which is he was going to end up getting in a fight with the president of the United States because that newspaper is sacred in Washington. And they people sacred to the last president too. No, really? sacred to every member of Congress. Like it is, oh, it is the chronicle of the time, right? 
So you're going to piss people off. And especially when you're trying to build a business like that and you have so much regulatory, you're going to end up driving people crazy. And, and I think he did it for all the right reasons. It's a better paper now, yada, yada, yada. But you can see how this thing was going to end. I also had the opposite reaction. I was so thrilled. I love newspapers so much. And I love when, um, like, like when folks buy them and want to invest in them and are going to care about them. So I was just thrilled to see it. As yeah, like me too. I was of sort of news. more naive. I didn't realize that they're all like, this is sacred. But so I liked it and he did make it better. But I hear you, Jim. And all by right. the way, I think it's been good for him. But what? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Agree to disagree. I mean, look, we're finally disagreeing. This is progress. I like it. We should do this more often. Um, Bo, you get the last question. Go ahead. Thank you all. Um, Jim, I heard you speak a few years ago at Duke, so it's good to see you on the panel. Um, this, um, this question could go for any of you, um, but whenever you have these um, Senate committees uh, speaking with people from Silicon Valley, a lot of the members often ask these inane questions. Um, why does Google select certain results to come up in the search results? So I wonder when you speak with people in the corporate world, do they expect policymakers to really misunderstand how their businesses work, how tech works, um, and are those kind of expectations that you have to get past? Yeah, look, I'll start. I, I think, you know, it, it's always it's always fun for me when as a political hack slash consultant, people try to do my job for, for me. And they're like, oh, I can do your job. And it's the same with like politicians and tech leaders, right? Politicians aren't going to know the details in a way that that would make them be able to ask smart questions. That's why you need to work with them, educate them, meet with their staff. You know, it's why you have to do the kind of nitty gritty of sausage making of these things. Because I agree with you. If you just watch C-SPAN and watch the last hearing where the big four CEOs came, there were some questions and you're just like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, they, that's an embarrassing question. But then you kind of sit back and say, well, why would they know? They're a freshman member of Congress who's never worked on these issues and is trying to learn. And it just means that we have to do a better job educating them and they have to do a better job asking better questions. And both sides need to go back and engage more. And I think the whole theory of this panel is gone are the days where you could just not worry about it. And now both sides have to engage with each other. Yeah, and, and I'm personally the, kind of oh, go ahead, Adrian. Well, I would just say on the other end, on the other end of the spectrum, when your relationships are as good as they can be, the staff will come to you to ask you what questions you want the member to ask your CEO when he's on the panel. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, and it's sort of this this hobby that both sides have uh, to show mutual disdain or call themselves stupid or naive or whatever. It's, it's gotten very old and tired, so we, sh we should all work hard to fix that. Um, guys, this has been fun. Um, Risa, Adrian, and Jim, thank you so much. Um, I'm happy that you guys decided. I'm really thrilled that you jo joined the panel. Uh, we're going to run this as a podcast uh, somewhere down the road, and hopefully um, we can keep this conversation going. And I will definitely come see you, Risa, when I'm in New York next. I'm dying to go. Uh, can't wait. I will take you somewhere great. Let me know. Okay. All right, guys, thank you so very much. And with that, I am going to end the clubhouse. Thanks for a great thank show. Bye-bye. Thanks.